2005, I took my very first mission trip into Fiji. Didn't know I wouldn't they be moving there. It was a two and a half week trip where I was teaching a class um, at night on the history of the church to a group of 30 or 35 Christians from the churches in Nandi and Latoka. And I immediately fell in love with the work there. Up until that point, all my missions experience had been in Russia. I'd made several trips in. I'd lived there for three years. And I loved the work in Russia. I loved my time in Russia. But to be honest, when you were working in Russia, most of the time it felt like you were just beating your head against a brick wall. And it was such a challenge. And so you could be in Russia, you'd be up there just preaching and teaching your heart out about all of the proofs for the, the, you know, the evidences for the existence of God. And then when you're done, you open the floor up for questions and somebody asks, did Adam have a belly button? But in Fiji and in Latoka, I could stand before the group and I could teach for two or two and a half hours on the early beginnings and foundations of the Church of Christ. And then I would open it up and I would get 30 minutes of in-depth questions from the Scripture that showed an audience who was clearly thirsting for a knowledge of God's Word. One of the things that most impressed me about that trip is... One of the Sunday mornings I was there, I was preaching at Latoka, and after services I was visiting uh, with one of the men, and I asked him um, in ignorance, you know, I was like, well, who is the regular preacher here? And I learned from him that most churches in Fiji, and in fact most churches in the South Pacific, don't have a single preacher. Uh, usually it's a rotation of the men who just share the responsibilities, and it's not a paid position. And so he was telling me that this congregation, there was you know, between 30 and 50 members, they had seven men who were sharing in the preaching responsibilities and they would rotate, preach, you know, rotate preaching and teaching class. What's more, he told me that just a few weeks before, they had taken it upon themselves to go to the next town down the highway or down the road of Ba and had decided to plant a congregation there. So not only were these men sharing in the preaching responsibilities at Latoka, but every Sunday one of them would drive over to Ba and would preach there as well. And I remember thinking to myself, this is what missions is supposed to be like. This is what the ideal mission is. Here you have a church that has been planted and it has reached a level where it is now self-supporting. They're taking care of themselves, providing their own preaching and teaching um, and what is more, they have reached a point of maturity where not only are they taking care of their congregation, but they are looking to other communities and now they are spreading the gospel and planting new churches themselves. And I thought, that's what mission work is supposed to be like. Now I want you to fast forward about 20 years to 2023. The church now has only two men, both well advanced in years, who are doing all of the preaching and teaching. One of them spent most of 2023 traveling to see family outside the country of Fiji. So that all the responsibility really fell on one man. 
where once you had a congregation that was thriving and, and you know, not just preaching for themselves, they were sending out to preach for others. Today you have a congregation that regularly needs somebody to drive from Suva five hours away to come and, and help fill in with the preaching. So you ask the question, what changed in 20 years? What happened? Well, part of it is unavoidable. To be fair, some of those men moved away with work and family and other things. And, and some of them today are in other congregations where they're continuing to preach and teach and help with the church. But the bigger issue is that the congregation had failed to connect with a new generation of Christians. You had leaders who were passionate, but they had failed to pass that instruction on to a new generation. And so whereas 20 years ago you had a lot of young families that were energetic and, and full of zeal for the Word of God, today you have a lot of older Christians. They're still, you know, love God and, and still passionate about God, but, but they're advanced in age and they just can't do as much and, and that next generation isn't there. In fact, if you visit services, you'll see a lot of older people and then you'll see just a very handful of small children that are typically not there with mom and dad. They're, they're there with grandparents or great-grandparents. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 17, the text that was just read for us, Paul is approaching death and, and therefore an end to his own earthly ministry. And as he anticipates his death, he gives a final charge to young Timothy. A charge for him to step up and to take the reins. A charge for a new generation of Christians to rise up and to lead in God's people and to lead in the teaching of God's people. If you go back a chapter, Paul has already told Timothy in chapter 2 and verse 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so Paul has already set this standard, this pattern, where he has said, I have trained Timothy, and I expect Timothy to train another generation, and a part of training them is to train that next generation to train still another generation. And thus we have a pattern for how God intends for leadership to develop and to grow so that the church can thrive for generations to come. And so now Paul is going to give this charge to Timothy in which he is challenging Timothy to rise up. And Paul in this text is going to note three things, three challenges that I think we can learn from when it comes to passing leadership on to a new generation. Beginning with number one. Paul says to Timothy, imitate the instructors. Imitate the instructors. Notice verse 10. He says, you however have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Paul urges Timothy to follow Paul's example. Notice what he says here. He says, you know, by, excuse me, by way of context before we get there, 
By way of context, in 2 Timothy, there are a number of indicators that Timothy is struggling with his faith or maybe courage. Maybe he's starting to have doubts about continuing in ministry. And particularly, Timothy seems to be concerned with Paul's imprisonment and and Paul's approaching death. And, And so he's worried about continuing in ministry. And so Paul responds to that by telling Timothy, look at my example. Even though Paul is suffering for the cause of Christ, what is Paul still doing? We know from other texts, he's still preaching and teaching even to his guards, right? We know from this text, he is still interested in seeing leadership in the churches. And we have other letters that are written to congregations. And so Paul is still, even in prison, preaching and teaching the gospel of Christ. And Paul tells Timothy to do the same thing. He says, look at my example. You know me. You have followed me from early on and you know how I have conducted my life. Follow that example. Now Paul's not trying to uphold himself and say, oh, I'm the best, look at me. But what Paul is trying to do, and I think this is important, is he is trying to leave behind an example that a new generation of Christian leaders can look to and follow. And we're still following that example today. And so I think the first lesson that we need to learn from this text is the importance of imitating the instructors. Because the truth is, one of the most powerful tools we have in learning is we learn by watching others do. I'm a visual learner. You can tell me something and tell me how to do something, and and if I work really hard, I can typically figure it out. But if you show me, then I pick it up a lot faster. I learn to do something by watching somebody else do it. Several years ago, I traveled on a mission trip to Christmas Island. It's a tiny atoll um, in Kiribati near the equator. It just has a few thousand people in the population. I was doing a mission trip there, and we went to this village where there was a church. The village was called Banana. And uh, so we go to this village, and I'm talking with the preacher, and, and one of the children speaks a little bit of English, and he comes up to me, and he says, would you like to see our chicken duck? I'm like, what is a chicken duck? I'm thinking, clearly this is some kind of translationary you know, problem or you know, something lost in the language. I'm like, what is a chicken duck? And they just kept saying it. And so finally they... They pull me aside and they lead me over to where there's this hen, this mama hen. And and sure enough, she goes across the yard and all of the chicks are in a line following behind her. And in the middle of this line of baby chicks, there is what is obviously a duckling. And this duckling thinks it's a chicken. It walks and bobs like a chicken. It pecks at the dirt and scratches at the dirt like a chicken. I don't think the thing could even fly. For all practical purposes, this duck thought it was a chicken. Well, you see, in nature, there's this thing called imprinting. And birds imprint. And what that means is 
when a bird hatches, it imprints on the first living thing that it sees, particularly the first living bird that it sees. I don't know how it happened. I don't know if somebody thought it was a funny joke or if the eggs got mixed up in the market where they bought the chicken or I don't know how it happened, but somehow a duck egg ended up in the midst of the eggs under this hen and when it hatched, it imprinted on the hen. And so it learned how to walk, how to act, how to eat. It learned everything from watching a chicken. Well, as Christians, we're a lot like that. We learn how to behave in the church by watching other people behave in the church. And particularly by watching the leaders, those who are presented to us as examples of behavior. And so, if we want to raise up a new generation of Christians, young people who rise to the occasion to become leaders in the church, if we want to raise new elders, new deacons, new preachers, new Bible class teachers, new missionaries and church planters, then we are going to have to surround our young converts and our young children with leaders who set an example that they can follow. And I don't mean just being a good person. We need elders who know our youth by name, who interact with them, We need preachers and teachers who don't just speak at the children, but they talk with them and communicate with them from the Word of God about how to deal with the situations they are going through. We need leaders who invite new converts, young Christians, young people to join them in doing the work. To say, hey, I'm going to go do a Bible study. Would you like to come with me? I'm going to visit this shut-in or this person in the hospital or this person in the, new, the nursing home. Would you like to go with me? We learn through watching others do. And so we need to set an example. Paul was not afraid to be a role model. In fact, he encouraged it. He encouraged people, look to my example. Imitate the instructors. Number two, Paul tells Timothy that he needs to recognize the risk. Recognize the risk. Picking up in verse 11, Paul continues to say, You have followed my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And so notice that having urged Paul, excuse me, having urged Timothy to follow his example, Paul warns Timothy that the life of ministry is not easy. The life of leadership in the church is difficult. In fact, in verse 11, Paul reminds Timothy of some of Paul's own struggles. He points out to some things that happened to Paul in the very region where Timothy calls home. In fact, you can go and you can read what Paul is talking about if you go to the book of Acts, chapters 13 and 14, 
where you will find that in Antioch, he was confronted and driven out of the city by jealous Jews. In chapter 14, in Iconium, they threatened him with physical abuse and in stoning. And then later in chapter 14, in Lystra, which is Timothy's own hometown, they actually succeeded in dragging Paul out of the city, stoning him and leaving him from death. And Paul says to Timothy, he says, you have followed my actions, my persecutions. You know how I was treated in these cities. Now the significance of that is that all of these happened before Acts chapter 16. When we read that Timothy is invited to join Paul's mission. And the point of what Paul is communicating here is he says, you knew what you were getting into before you joined the mission. He says, I didn't hide it from you. This was no secret. You knew how they treated me before, long before you joined in the work that I'm doing. In other words, Paul says, you knew the risks. He goes on to point out that there are always going to be those who will persecute you for standing up for what's right. There will always be those who will seek to pervert the gospel and to turn hearts away from the truth of salvation. And so the second thing we learn here is we need to teach the new generation to recognize the risks. I'm a person who believes very much that we should be honest and to, to be open about this is what you can expect. In fact, I think it's imperative that if we want to truly prepare Christians to lead in the church, that we don't put blinders on them. That they recognize what it is that they're going to face. You know, Jesus in sending the disciples out in Luke chapter 10 and verse 3, you remember what He says? He says, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. He says it's going to be hard. And I'd love to stand here and tell you how easy ministry is. But the truth is, ministry, serving as elders, deacons, missionaries, leading in the church, can be tough. There are always going to be people who are going to be there to ridicule and persecute you for what you believe and what you teach. There are always going to be those who will question the truthfulness of your message or they will cast doubt upon your character or your motives. There are always going to be people who are going to point out every mistake that you make and, and just highlight your failings. There are always going to be people who will seek to teach false doctrine and, and to turn people away from the salvation you are trying to share. There's always going to be problems. But that's not a reason to quit. And that's what Paul is saying here. Paul is telling Timothy, far from that being an excuse for you to go off and quit doing this, as you read the rest of the letter, he says that's exactly why they need you. Because there are people who will teach false doctrine. There are those who will try to persecute you and beat you out of your faith. Who's going to stand if you don't? Who's going to teach if you don't. We need to teach our youth and our Christians to recognize the risks. But we need to balance that by also teaching them to recognize the rewards. Sometimes we can go to the other extreme where it's all about the sacrifices and we neglect the rewards. Notice what Paul goes on to tell Timothy in verse 11. He says, 
you know, even as he talks about all the things he's endured, he says, yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Yes, Paul had suffered for the cause of Christ. He says God was always there to deliver him. And although it is true that this time Paul knows that his journey is coming to an end, Paul still recognizes or sees that as a rescue. You go into chapter 4, and and we won't read all of it, but verses 6 to 8, he talks about how his time is at an end, right? But then you get specifically to verse 8, he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Paul says that even though I'm struggling here, he says God still delivers me. Paul says I'm in a win-win situation. What if God changes His mind? Paul believes he's going to die, but what if God changes His mind and Paul once again is rescued, as he is so often? Well, Paul gets to go back to the life of ministry that he loves, bringing people to Christ. But what if this really is the end, as it appears, and Paul dies? Paul says, I still win. Because he says, I finally get to go to the reward that I've been working towards. I finally get to go to heaven. If we want a new generation to rise up and to become leaders in the church, then we need to show them the risks. We need to prepare them for the challenges that are going to come their way. We also need to share with them the rewards. The fact that it is worth it. Last couple of years of mission work in Fiji has been very difficult. In fact, I have been through some of the most challenging times of my life. In the last couple of years, I wasn't able to attend the graduation ceremony when my son Austin graduated from the Air Force, from basic. My wife and I didn't get to be there when Corey and Heather got married. My wife and I could not be there when my father had cancer surgery. When my mom was diagnosed with cancer, when in May of last year she almost died. My wife and I did not get to go to my grandmother's funeral when she died a little over a year ago. We didn't get to go to my wife's grandmother's funeral when she died a little over a year ago. I'm going to be honest. We've had challenges. Doing mission work has come at a cost. It has cost us something. But you know, at the same time that we have been through these these struggles during these same two years, God has blessed us in so many other ways. Over the last two years, I have experienced firsthand an outpouring of love that is unimaginable from the Lord's church. From Christians in Fiji who have held us, they have cried with us, they have celebrated with us to churches in the U.S. who have reached out to us. They've sent emails, they've sent cards, they've sent care packages, they have sent money. They've looked out for my mom and my dad 
when they were struggling, taking care of their house, taking care of meals, taking care of all kinds of things. They have, you know, when Devin broke her arm in September and ended up having to have surgery, within a couple of days, we had been given more money than the cost of the surgery. They immediately just reached out. You know, over the last couple of years that we've made sacrifices, the things we've missed here, I've watched Caleb become the assistant youth coordinator for a year, become a regular part of the preaching rotation. I saw Nathan preach his very first sermon. I saw one of the elders' kids, 13 years old, preach his first sermon. I have seen our graduates go on to work with local congregations, and I have seen churches that are growing and thriving and sometimes reviving through the work of students that I was able to help train and to prepare. And on and on I could go, but the point is this. The greatest reward is heaven. As the song we sometimes sing goes, heaven will surely be worth it all. I know as our time is coming to an end, our final point, Paul says, search the Scriptures. We've already read this during the reading, and so for time I, I won't reread it also because I know it's familiar to you. But as we conclude, I, I just want to point out final thing Paul says to Timothy is, put your trust in God's Word. We know the text. How Paul tells Timothy, you have known the Scriptures from childhood. You were trained by your mother and your grandmother. And he points out, he says, it's these Scriptures. He says, they have come from God. They contain everything you need to know in order to be prepared to stand before God in judgment. Timothy is struggling. What am I going to do if Paul's not here? Paul says, you have everything you need. It's in the Word of God. If Timothy would trust the Scriptures, everything else was going to be okay. And so as we close, at the end of the day, this is the key. This is the key to becoming a strong, faithful Christian leader, whether it's a preacher, a teacher, an elder, a deacon, or a missionary. Trust the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures. Invest yourself in the Scriptures. One of the things I tell my students all the time is I can't teach you everything there is to know about the Bible. We don't have the time, and I don't have all the answers. Our goal in our program is not to teach you everything there is to know about the Bible. What our goal is is to give you the tools you need to search the Scriptures on your own. And if you will do that, you will find every answer you need to face every challenge that will come your way. And that's what we need to be instilling in the new generation. We need to be doing more than just telling them, this is what the Bible says, this is what you're supposed to do. We need to invest time into teaching them how to study the Word for themselves. So that when they grow up and they leave mom and dad's home and they go out on their own, that skill goes with them. That practice of constant study goes with them. And if we will do that, then the future leadership of the church will be secure. Because at the end of the day, it is the Scriptures 
that contain the message that will save us. And what that message says is this. That God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth to live, to die on the cross. That He was buried in the ground for three days. But God has raised Him up and He has ascended into heaven where He is at the right hand of God. And one day He is returning to take His children home. To be a child of God and to enjoy salvation in Jesus Christ means that I must first die to myself. And I do that, Romans chapter 6, through the act of baptism, being dying to the man of sin, being buried, and then being raised up a new creature. But I would guess that the majority of you have made that decision. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 10 makes it very clear that even as Christians, we still sometimes get it wrong. We still sometimes stumble in sin. That doesn't mean the Scriptures don't have an answer. Verse 9 of that chapter says that if we will confess our faults to the Father, He is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 go on to say that even as we struggle, when we confess our sin, Jesus is there to mediate on our behalf. This morning, it is the Scriptures that can save you. It is the Scriptures that offer this invitation. We invite you to come.